the picture of the earliest Christian community when the Christians had not even spread out of the city of Jerusalem. And they were living together and they were sharing all of their goods and possessions such that there was not a single needy person amongst the community. It's a wonderful picture of generosity. It's a beautiful picture. And yet, Ananias and Sapphira, two members of this Christian community, they decide that they're going to contribute. What they do is they decide to keep some back for themselves. Now note, we're told here by Peter's questions, when Peter, the apostle, asked Ananias some questions, that they didn't have to give, it wasn't compulsory. They didn't have to give, and they didn't have to give at all. The issue here was, they lied about it. They said, this is the full amount we got for selling the field, and we're giving it all to you. But they actually kept some back to themselves. They lied about it. With terrible consequences. Ananias is struck down dead on the spot as a judgment of God. And that's not the end of the story. If you've got Acts chapter 5 open there in front of you, it'd be helpful to open it up and have a look what happens next. Acts chapter 5, have a look from verse 7. We're then told, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Now notice the detail we were told a bit earlier at the beginning of the chapter. In verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself. Ananias and Sapphira had worked together on this plan. Now in verse 7, three hours later, she walks in not knowing what had happened. Verse 8, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. That's a lie. Verse 9. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What sort of community is this? Beautiful generosity and community-mindedness on one hand and on the other, devastating standards, it seems, of truthfulness and honesty expected. What is this new Christian community? And how does it relate to the Christian community today? Well, we've been looking at the book of Acts just before mid-semester break, and we're going to continue our walk through the book of Acts through to the end of semester. And I've tried to explain that I think the book of Acts in the New Testament sets a trajectory for bracketed by the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to his Father's right hand in glory, and the one day promised return of the Lord Jesus Christ, for which we still wait. Those two bracketing events, the ascension and return of the Lord Jesus, set this era that we live in. And the book of Acts describes the very beginning of that era and it sets the trajectory for what Jesus is doing today. That's the thing that we're looking at in this book of Acts. What is Jesus doing today? So we look back at the book of Acts to try to get our bearings for what is Jesus doing today. And today we're looking at this Christian community and I've called this sort of reflection 
A community like no other. A community like no other. Luke gives us two windows into this early Christian community. One here that we just read in Luke chapter 4 and 5. And one a little bit earlier back in Luke chapter 2. They have a lot of common themes. I take it that that is deliberate. That way is a way of Luke telling us what I'm describing here is not an anomaly. It's not a one-off. It's consistent in the Christian community. It sets the trajectory for what, how Christians, how followers of Jesus are to behave today. So let's have a look at these two windows that Luke gives us into the Christian community. If you can turn back with me to Acts chapter 2, in verse 42 to 47, we'll get this first little window. You'll notice some similar themes. Let me read out. Actually, we'll jump into verse 41. Verse 41 of Acts chapter 2 is uh, the day of Pentecost. The Apostle Peter has uh, preached about the risen Lord Jesus uh, with the promise of forgiveness of sins for those who repent and come back to Christ and the promise of the Holy Spirit for those who would follow him. You'll notice there in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So the Christian church revival has broken out in Jerusalem. They've gone from 120 disciples to over 3,000. Suddenly they have a sizable Christian community. What's that community like? Well, Luke jumps straight in to give you a description. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Four descriptors there. And what we're going to see when we add this window into the Christian community with the window in chapters 4 and 5, we're going to come up with a total of six. Six. Six descriptors to the Christian community. So we're going to take them sort of one at a time. We start with this summary statement in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. How do you know about the Lord Jesus Christ? Chat to the person next to you. How are the different ways that you know about the Lord Jesus Christ? What are the different answers you might give to that question? Have a chat to the person next to you, just for 20 seconds. give to that question, non-rhetorical question. What, how do you know about the Lord Jesus Christ? Call it out. Someone. Sorry, someone, I heard someone say someone. What, what was that? Yeah. I said someone told me. Someone told me about Jesus. Hand up if someone at any point in your life has ever told you something about Jesus. Hey, look at that. Yeah, big win. Okay, good. Yeah. Someone told me about it. How else might you learn about Jesus? Reading the eyewitness Reading the eyewitness accounts. Where do you find those? Fisher Library? The Gospels. <laughs> you probably can find a Fisher Library, but they're in where? The Gospels. 
The Gospels in the Christian New Testament, yes, okay, reading the eyewitness accounts. Any other answers you could give? Yeah. Revelation. Revelation, the book of? Of, oh, from God. <laughs> Direct revelation from God. Like a dream. Like a dream, yes. Um, but you might have heard stories of people receiving some sort of dream. But now, here's my question, or here's the statement. The only authoritative way you can learn about Jesus, the only authoritative way that anyone can learn about Jesus is via the apostles. Is via the apostles. Jesus said to them, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses, my eyewitnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Not me, not you, them. The apostles are Jesus' chosen, authoritative eyewitnesses. That's why they had to be with him through his public teaching ministry. They had to be a witness of his death and of his resurrection. They are the authorised, Holy Spirit-empowered eyewitnesses. We have their testimony recorded for us in the Christian New Testament. So even though you can't go on chapter Peter now, you have his eyewitness testimony recorded for you in the documents in the New Testament. The only way that anyone can have an authoritative knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is through his chosen eyewitnesses. So someone may tell you something about Jesus. Hopefully they're telling you something that is in accordance with the authoritative testimony of the eyewitnesses. You might receive a revelation about the Lord Jesus. Hopefully that is in accordance with the authorised, authoritative testimony of the eyewitnesses. That's how you check it. That's how you know if it's true. You check it about against his authorised, authoritative eyewitnesses. It's interesting to me that the early church, what do they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, because that's where you get the true knowledge of Jesus. Uh, I think it's just worth remembering, I'm saying, I think this description of the early church here in the book of Acts is paradigmatic. It sets the paradigm of the trajectory for Jesus' followers today. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Are you devoted to the apostles' teaching? Are you devoted to the reading of the scriptures, the teaching of the scriptures? Is it something you do occasionally or is it something you're devoted to? At different times in your life as well, you are probably going to have to uh, choose a church, if you're a Christian person, choose a Christian church to belong to. You might have changed church recently or maybe you've never changed churches, but at some point, my guess is, you will probably need to change churches. Hopefully you'll get a job somewhere and maybe you've decided to um, go and serve in a less reached, a less gospel resourced place and so you need to find a new church to belong to. Or You're going to have to make that decision at some point. When you do, find a community of Jesus followers who are devoted to the apostles' teaching, who are committed to teaching and preaching the Christian scriptures. You might think, oh, that's a no-brainer. I mean, what else would a church do? No, let me tell you, there are many, 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 many churches which either sideline the teaching of the apostles, sideline the Bible, by focusing on other things, 
They might focus instead on social action, doing good in the world. It is good to do good in the world. It's good for Christians to do good in the world. But if that becomes the primary thing, the thing you're devoted to, you've got the priorities flipped around. Or maybe they're so focused on their particular style of church worship or liturgy or uh, praise or they're just they're, they're focusing on other things rather than being fundamentally devoted to the Christian scriptures it's also possible that, there's, that you, you might find a church where they don't just sort of sideline the Bible where they actively denigrate the teaching of the apostles a church which has adopted a more liberal theological position and actually elevates human reason above the revelation of God in the scriptures, they're not devoted to the apostles' teaching. At some point, when you need to choose a church, please choose a church that follows the model that we've got here in the book of Acts, devoted to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, you read here they're devoted to the fellowship. Now, I'm going to split this into two. Two different things that we notice here. They were meeting together they were meeting together, verse, if you look at verse 44 of chapter 2, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Jump down to verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. It's not surprising that these Christians were meeting in the Jewish temple because at this point all of the Christians had come out of a Jewish background. Of course they were meeting in the temple courts. They were believing the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And they're meeting, but they're, no, they're meeting every day. A bit full on every day. I just want to encourage you that over the coming years, it's going to get more tricky for you to prioritize meeting together with other Christians. Your life beyond uni is going to get, I'm sorry to say, more complicated, not more simple. I know you. I know you probably have a full-on busy life now. You're juggling lots of things. You're juggling university study, three different part-time jobs, involvement at church if you're a Christian person, here in the EU, plus your family, plus your 3,000 friends that you're trying to keep up with. Like, I, I, I know, I'm not being facetious. That is busy, right? That is, well, heads up, it's going to get more busy. It's going to get more pressured. You're going to take on more responsibilities as you sort of progress in your workplace life is going to get more complicated you might choose to get married that's going to give you extra sort of responsibilities you might the lord might bless you with children you might have to take care of aging parents life is just going to get more complicated not less complicated okay so if you're finding it hard to meet together with other christians now that's not going to get easier is it you need to decide to be devoted to meeting together with sisters and brothers in Christ. You need to make that as a decision. Because if you don't make it as a proactive decision, it'll just drift. And it'll drift out the door. And it'll be an occasional thing that you meet with other Christians. Couldn't possibly sort of lead a Bible study at church. It's just, oh, it's just we'd be way too tiring. Of course it's tiring. I lead Bible study for our church on Tuesday nights at my place. My wife and I, we love, we love our Bible study group. They are wonderful Christian brothers and sisters. But you know what? Every Tuesday night, we are exhausted. And that's before it starts. 
To be devoted to meeting together takes effort. Don't expect that it's just going to be an easy thing. It's something, no, out of your love for Christ, you love his people. They were devoted to the fellowship, to meeting together. That is going to be a challenge for you. So you've got to make the call. Make the call. The other thing about the fellowship, the meeting together, is that they were sharing their possessions. I'm going to leave that to the side for a minute. I'm going to come back to that because that features particularly in the second window, chapter 4 and 5. Okay? So we'll come back to that. The third thing that you notice here is they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Uh, Luke gives you a bit more explanation if you jump down to halfway through verse 46. He says, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. What's this about uh, breaking bread together? Well, do you remember that the Lord Jesus, during his earthly ministry, was often criticised by other people for who he ate with? The common complaint was, look at him. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. And yet this was the wonderful sort of um, enacted picture by the Lord Jesus of the grace and the welcome that is extended to all people when you come to Jesus in faith and repentance. So the the table fellowship, the breaking of bread, the sharing of meals together, it was an unexpected, uncommon level of hospitality. You wouldn't... Why would Jesus eat with these sinners and outcasts? Well, because they too were recipients of grace. And what you see here is the Christian community following Jesus' example, doing the same thing. They are showing this unexpected, uncommon level of hospitality and welcome to one another. What does that look like in our setting today? It's the person in the Christian community who comes from a different cultural background to you. That you express welcome and show an uncommon, unexpected hospitality to them because you are one in Christ Jesus. It's the person who is frankly awkward, who really is seriously lacking in social skills, but calls Jesus their Lord, who you show an uncommon, unexpected welcome and hospitality towards. Why? Because they too, like you, are a recipient of grace in the Lord Jesus. They were committed to the breaking of bread together, showing that that level of uncommon, unexpected fellowship. The fourth thing you notice here is they were committed to prayer, praying together. We read there in verse 47, they were praising God. I don't know what to say about this. They were devoted to prayer. The one observation I have is that the EU, just two weeks ago, just before mid-sem break, at their EU's annual general meeting, adopted a vision, like a plan, to move towards EU centenary in 2030. In 2030, EU will turn 100, praise God. And EU has sort of adopted a bit of a vision to drive us towards that centenary. EU has three sort of abiding sort of goals or objects to evangelise the campus, to grow Christians in their faith and witness and send Christians out to serve in the world. And they've picked three particular things to shoot for under those three big objects over the next seven years. But you know what I love most of all about it? Is that above those three specific goals, 
there's one vision to rule them all. <laughs> That's just for the geeks amongst us. <laughs> um, there's one particular vision to rule them all. What, what is the one vision that over... It is about prayer. The EU has decided over the next seven years that above everything else, we want to be devoted to prayer, prayer for revival, revival on our campus, revival in our own hearts and the Christians in the EU who might come after us, revival in their hearts, and revival in the wider world. And where did the idea of being devoted to prayer come from? Our early church sisters and brothers. What were they devoted to? They were devoted to prayer. I think that's fantastic The EU has picked out as something to shoot for over the next seven years. Wouldn't that be great if that's who we were and that's who we kept in beyond the university gates? So there's the first four things. Come with me now to the second window, Acts chapter 4 and 5. Come with me to the second window. We can add two more. I skipped over this one before. I said it was part of the fellowship idea that there is a... Oh, I did this yesterday too. No, I'll just keep going. (laughs) Let's let's jump to the second window. Jump to the second window, Acts chapter 4 and 5. Let's notice something else here about this is their their sharing of their goods with one another. Such that, you'll notice here, let me read again verse 34 and 35. There was, Luke says, there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. There is no needy person amongst them. I mean, that's pretty impressive, this Christian community. By this point, many thousands of people, many thousands of people, we know not a single needy person amongst them. That's impressive. However, you may not get the important resonance that you're meant to get when Luke says this. The fact that there was no needy person amongst them has sort of flashing lights around it. Because if you know your Old Testament, you'll go, oh, that means the early church, this group of Christians, were being what the Old Testament nation of Israel was meant to be. They are being what Israel was meant to be. You can see this by looking up Deuteronomy chapter 15. Got your Bible there? Always good to look up the Old Testament if we get an opportunity. Go to Luke chapter 15. Luke, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 15. Luke 15 is probably also good, but Deuteronomy 15 is where we want to go. Deuteronomy chapter 15. This chapter is actually about um, every seven years, Old Testament Israelites were to cancel all their debts. Every seven years. So I loan you some money, and whichever you were up to, if it's year two, okay, well, you'll sort of repay it for the next, from year two to year seven, five years. Um, but if it's year six, I still loan you the money, and you just repay for one year, but up at the end of seven years, cancel all the debts. Hit restart every seven years. You might want to ask, think about why was that? Why, why would that have been a thing in the Old Testament Israel? What was that about? Great questions. Come and talk to me afterwards. I'll talk to you about it. But notice this, verse 4, Deuteronomy 15. However, there should be no poor among you, 
For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. Jump ahead, down to then verse 7. If there is a poor person among any of your sisters and brothers in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother or sister. Right, he's saying there shouldn't be any poor people because the Lord will richly bless you together. Like in some total, there'll be enough. So when you meet a poor person, don't be tight-fisted. Be generous, open-handed. Verse 8, rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbour this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for cancelling debts is near. So that you do not show ill will toward your needy brother and give him nothing. He may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you, you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your sisters and brothers and towards the poor and needy. Old Testament Israel was meant to be a place where there were no needy people. Fast forward through to the community of those believers gathered around the Lord Jesus. What do you see? No needy person among them. That is, the church, the Christians, are living out the vision and the values of the promised kingdom of God. They're living out the vision and the values of the promised kingdom of God. And this has been what Jesus, this reflects Jesus' teaching. Um, there's lots of points in the first volume, Luke's first volume, Luke part one, the Gospel of Luke, lots of places where Luke records Jesus' teaching about how God's people were meant to be generous with their possessions. Let me just read to you some of these verses here. They're listed up on the screen there. Luke chapter 18, verse 18 to 25, is about Jesus talking with the rich young ruler. And he says to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Or in Luke chapter 12, verse 32 to 33, he says to his disciples, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31 is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And in that parable that Jesus tells, Abraham says to Lazarus, a rich man who refused to be generous with his belongings that God had given him, Abraham says, Your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. This was the teaching of the Old Testament, to be God's people to be generous with their possessions. And then Luke chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is pretty clear. You can't serve God and money. And what do you see the early church doing? No one considered their belongings their own. They held everything in common. And whenever someone was in need, they would go and sell something, bring the money to the apostles so it could be distributed to those in need. What you see in the early church is not financial independence. I know that's what our world tells us wisdom looks like when it comes to money and possessions. 
Surely, if you're going to be wise, you should seek for financial independence, to not be dependent upon anyone, to have your super worked out, to have your own property portfolio, to have a good job so you've got all the money coming in. You shouldn't be dependent on anyone. I mean, a hex debt, my goodness. Then you're dependent on the government. So you've got to get rid of the hex debt as quick as you can. You have probably, because we all do, already bought into the financial independence lie. That's not what biblical wisdom looks like. That's not the model here, is it? It's financial interdependence. That's Jesus' way of financial wisdom. Financial interdependence. And as a result of that financial interdependence, that loving financial interdependence, there was not a needy person amongst them. It's interesting when you follow this through, you think, well, that's, maybe that's just all a bit extreme. Those early chapters of Acts, it's a bit extreme. Except it's mentioned there twice, Acts 2 and Acts 4. This is consistent among them. And when you read through the rest of the New Testament, the same principle of financial independence, interdependence keeps coming up. So, for example, Paul and Barnabas, well, he was called Saul at the time, Barnabas and Saul in Acts chapter 11, are taking up a collection from the Christians in Antioch to go and relieve the Christians in Jerusalem. Financial interdependence. Or if you read on in Paul's letters in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 or Romans 16, Paul is talking about a collection he's taking up around the Mediterranean to relieve the Christians who are in, uh, in crisis in Jerusalem. Financial interdependence. You thought Paul was the great missionary church planter. He was proclaiming the gospel of Christ, but he was also living the gospel of Christ, which meant living out and modelling that financial interdependence. Now, I'll tell you what, this is challenging for us. And I, honestly, I don't quite know what to do with this, but I'm going to just lay these facts on you. The World Bank, the World Bank, not a Christian organisation, the World Bank said in November last year, November 2022, that there are currently 719 million people in the world who are living in what they call extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. That's less than US $2.15 a day. And they, they're, they're smart people, they work it out for you know, how much do goods cost in your country versus how much income do you have. They work it out so it's comparable across the world. 9.2% of the world's population are living in extreme that's pretty distressing. It's interesting that uh, Micah Australia, an uh, organisation inspired by uh, the book of Micah in the Old Testament, they say that less than 1% of the combined income of the world's richest countries would solve extreme poverty, according to a UN estimate. What is all that saying? That's just saying there's plenty of money in the world. It's just not actually relieving those who are living in extreme poverty. Now let's get a bit more confrontational with that. The statistic that I've encountered is that out of those 719 million who are living in extreme poverty, is just under 200 million claim to be followers of Jesus. living in extreme poverty. And 
another fact that I've read is that if all the people who said they're Christians, not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian, I know that, but get the idea. If everybody who said they were a Christian was happy to give 10% of their income away, that Christians alone could solve the problem of extreme poverty for everybody who's in it. I wonder how far we've wandered from financial interdependence. Let me tell you a good story. I was teaching on this um, this topic of financial interdependence at an EU camp uh, some years ago, and. Um, at the end of this, I hadn't planned this. At the end of the talk, you know, we prayed and sat down. The EU vice president of the day got up and just said, um, well, I don't know what came over him, whether it was the spirit of God or whether it was just um, youthful exuberance, I don't know, but he just said, I think we, and it was a group of people probably about this many, I think we, together, as followers of Jesus, should make sure that anyone who wants to go to an EU camp or conference, anyone who wants to go, should be able to go. We should just do that between ourselves. And they were just generally in the camp who went, yeah, we should. And so they set up like a group chat of everybody in the camp. And over the next two years, whenever there was an EU camp or conference, a message would go around the group chat saying, hey, we need some funds so because there's a bunch of people who can't afford to go, blah, 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 and people just give. And they did it for the next two years that they were around on campus. That's a bunch of students. And honestly, they work less than you do. So, as in paid jobs. So, it's just interesting to me. God has given us a lot. He's given us a lot. What are we using it for? Financial interdependence was part of how they were devoted to each other. And then let's dig down into the final one. The final one. They were living with holy fear. Let's return then to our disturbing story about Ananias and Sapphira. As I said, the issue with Ananias and Sapphira was lying. It was their lack of truthfulness that they, they were deceiving. Interesting to me was they lied to the community. They lied to the community. But what Peter says is you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. You've tested the Spirit of the Lord. Those are the phrases he uses. That is, if you lie to the community, you're lying to God. Not because the community is God, but because... This is the temple of the Lord, this group of people. If you're lying to God's people, then you're lying to the Lord. And clearly what's going on in this disturbing story is that the one true living God cares very much about the holiness of his people. He cares very much about issues like truth and godliness. When Ananias and Sapphira died, I wonder if you noticed the response of the community who were there. Twice we're told, verse 5 and verse 11, that the community was filled with great fear. I mean, that's understandable, isn't it? 
people have been bringing their proceeds from their sales to the apostles, and then you hear that interaction between Peter and Ananias, and he dies. And three hours later, Sapphira comes in, and then she dies. Yeah, great fear. That also is resonant with the Old Testament. If you go back and look at Exodus chapter 20, which is where the one true living God gives the Ten Commandments to the Israelites, they hear the voice of the one true living God giving them the Ten Commandments. At the end, they say to Moses, Please, Moses, you go and speak to God. We can't, this is just way too scary for us. Surely we'll die. Moses then says in Exodus 20, verse 20, he says, Don't be afraid. You won't die. But God has spoken to you like this so that you would have a right fear of him to keep you from sinning. A right fear of the one true living God keeps us walking in his ways, keeps us walking the ways of holiness. That's what you're seeing going on during the early Christian community. God takes holiness really, really seriously. I keep looking at my watch, hoping that time has run out, because I don't want to tell you the story. Unfortunately, time has not run out, so I'm going to tell you the story. I don't like to tell you this story because it's an embarrassing story for me. It's a shameful story. But I share it with you to encourage you to greater holiness and godliness. Um, when I was at Bible college, over the Christmas holidays each year, you would be set a certain um, amount of the Bible to read. And the goal was that over three holidays, you would read through the whole Bible. And um, first day back after the Christmas holidays, you had to go into the, you know, the office of the college and sign that you'd read that section of scripture. And one of my mates hadn't done it, and he turned up and just said, look, I haven't done it. And they said, well, you can't come to class until you've done your reading. So go away, do your reading, then come to class. And so, I mean, that's good. So he went and did that. And I just thought, oh, I haven't done it. I, I can't bear missing class. That's just going to be too stressful. I've just been on behind and everything. So I just went in and I signed it. Saying to myself, of course, oh, well, there's lots of good reasons I didn't get it done. No, they won't. But, um, and I'll get, around to get, I'll get around to doing it soon. And I didn't. I lied. I just lied to God's people. Ananias could have been me. Sapphira could have been me. If you lie to God's people, you're lying to God. It was quite a few years later that I was reading this passage. And, and God helped me see suddenly, oh, that's me. So I phoned up the college. I said, I'd like to see the principal. This is years later. I go back to the college. I'm welcomed into the principal's office. I sit down with him and just say, okay, I'll just try to tell you a story. God takes the holiness of his people very seriously. If you lie to God's people, you're lying to God. 
I know that this is the season of the year where your church is probably looking for leaders for next year. The EU looking for leaders for next year. You're discussing, am I going to lead youth group? Am I going to be a small group leader? And I'm sure that your church, like the EU, you know, says, look, are you walking in holiness? Are you sort of living the way God would have you live at the moment? There's no, is there unrepentant sin in your life? Don't lie to God's people. Don't do it. Repent. Do business with God. Rejoice in His abundant grace. We all need it. And it's available for you too. This is who God's people are called to be. Devoted to Jesus' teaching via the apostles, via the scriptures. Is that true for you? Are you devoted to the scriptures, devoted to the apostles' teaching? What churches are you going to look for in the years to come? They were committed to meeting together. Will you make meeting together with God's people a priority next year in the busyness of whatever 2024 holds for you in the years to come as life just ramps up? In meeting one another's financial needs, the model of financial interdependence, are we willing to be sacrificially generous together? to meet needs, both locally and internationally. And breaking bread together. Are we willing to show that uncommon, unexpected welcome, living the reality that we are one in Christ Jesus? And prayer. How good is it to have an EU devoted to prayer for revival over the next seven years? And holy fear. Embrace repentance and God's forgiveness. And here's my final point. I skipped over it at the end of the first window, chapter 2, verse 47, and I'll come back to it now. Luke records that as a result of God's people living like this, he says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. They're proclaiming Christ and they're living a community like Noah. And the Lord added daily to their number. If we live like that, do you think we would stand out from the university around us? If we live like that, will we stand out from the suburbs and the community of Sydney? Might it be that part of the reason we don't see people being out of daily is just where we just don't look different. We're not living different. Because this is what Jesus is doing today amongst his people. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyunieu.org.